appreciate very much now if you would take a Bible, either your own Bible or the church Bible provided there in the pew, and turn with me to the 11th chapter of Paul's great epistle to the Romans. It is very difficult for me as a preacher to mention the book of Romans or have people turn there without using such adjectives as great. The book of Romans, this is the magnus opus. This is the peak, the, the Everest of all biblical and Christian teaching expressed so profoundly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the quill of another great Uh, the great Apostle Paul. So you're turning with me to uh, Romans chapter 11. I want to read, have you follow along, verses 33 through 36. Romans chapter 11. We're going to read just several verses, beginning at verse 33, culminating in one of those Mount Everest-type peaks at verse 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or whoever became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have a word from you this morning in this text, and it is all about our Lord Jesus Christ. We readily confess that most of us here this morning are perhaps more deeply concerned about ourselves. This is innately true because it is simply part of our fallen humanity. However, you have graciously taught us that the more we get our eyes off of ourselves and focused on you, the more we value Christ, we discover in ourselves a true joy that wells up, a state of blessedness which is to be found in him alone. He who said... I am come, that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And so led by your Holy Spirit, we ask, we plead for a fresh encounter with the Lord Jesus today. In these moments, so fill our hearts and minds with the beauty, the glories of Christ that will send us on our way rejoicing in His glory, we ask by His lovely name. Amen and amen.
on this particular Lord's Day as we are commemorating God's faithfulness to us as a church over the last 50 years. One of the delights I had this week uh, was to be interviewed by a local reporter from our local Inglewood Sun, and a number of copies of that article are around. Some of you may have seen it. Uh, I was intrigued by the young reporter's questions to me. Uh, he asked, of course, for some information about the history of the church, and that was provided by Elder Billy Melvin, much of what you heard this morning in that wonderful review. Uh, but then the reporter asked me, how has the church and the town changed since I became the pastor? Well, of course, I said, all for the good. <laughs> Not really. Uh, he asked, uh, this is a good question, what is Good Shepherd's role in the community? And I thought that an opportunity to say that, yes, we want to serve in very practical ways. I mentioned the food collection that we do ministering to shut-ins as we will uh, this afternoon. But I very deliberately, and I'm glad that he wrote this within his article, that while we said meeting the material and sometimes even the emotional needs of people is an important part of our contribution to the community in which our church resides. But I said the primary role we have is a spiritual one. We want to be the one place you can go where something more than your material needs can be met, but where you will hear a word that goes deeper and penetrates at the deepest level of human need, the very soul. I guess the one question that threw me a little bit was this one. He said, what's in store for the next 50 years of Good Shepherd? And this is how I responded. I said, well, I'll be 113 years old by then. And it occurs to me that the youngest child in our children's ministry will be approaching retirement. And that I could not, of course, predict the future of Good Shepherd Church. But I would say, and I did say, that God is faithful to his church and to his people. And I let the reporter know that our prayer is that he, God, will be pleased to raise up the next generation of those who will love the Lord their God, who will worship him together, loving one another and loving their neighbors as themselves. May God be pleased to answer such a prayer. Our primary goal, I told him, is to speak to the spiritual need of people which most of you are aware enough is, in fact, the greatest need. You can give someone a loaf of bread, and it may sustain them another day on their earthly journey, but not until you have offered the very bread of life who is Jesus himself have you done something for that individual that truly has eternal consequences. And so teaching the Bible and preaching the Bible and, and articulating very specifically and carefully at times what is it that we believe with all of our hearts that gives us a good reason to hope for another 50 years of faithful ministry. Doctrine 
That is the teaching of scripture is important. For the first time, I don't know in, in forever, it seems, I've, I've brought along with my Bible the Good Shepherd Church Constitution. And uh, it, of course, does state in summary form the chief teachings of the Bible upon which we see our church as resting, even as the Lord Jesus Christ has taught us. We have at the very beginning of that church constitution, as if to say this, among all other things we may do, or however we organize ourselves according to biblical principles, anyone coming here should receive this and know what it is we actually believe. There are 12 articles of our faith, of things that we believe. And I just want to give you a statement of a couple of these so that you'll know that what we've been doing over these past five weeks is in fact very much in keeping with the vision of our church to proclaim the glorious doctrines of grace for every sinner and for every saint. Here's what we said in the Constitution, for example, about our view of the Bible. And when we started our five-part series, we were looking right at that, sola scriptura, the Bible. Here's what Good Shepherd states in its doctrinal beliefs. We believe the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, to be the inspired word of God without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for the salvation of man, the absolute, sufficient, and final authority for all of Christian faith and life. So when we were looking at the first of the solaces, sola scriptura, I hope you recognize that there was an emphasis, of course, laid on those beliefs. Can't read all of these, but let me read to you what it is we believe about the third person of the Godhead, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully. We believe that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, to convict the world of sin, to regenerate. Sound familiar? If you were here in our series just last Lord's Day, we talked about the doctrine of regeneration, that it is the Holy Spirit that brings sinners to spiritual life. That that same Holy Spirit would regenerate, indwell, instruct, guide, and empower the believer for godly living and service. Here's what we believe about the nature of man. And it's under the heading, The Fall of Man. We believe that man, created in the image of God, fell into sin through disobedience and is therefore spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And only through regeneration by the Holy Spirit can salvation and spiritual life be obtained. So we trust that we were able to declare that truth last Lord's Day by looking at the scriptures themselves. Here's what we believe about salvation. We believe that the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection provide the only ground for justification and salvation for all who truly believe. And such as confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, these are those born of the Spirit of God as his redeemed children. And then the nature of the church. With this one, I'll close in this 
portion of our examination move on with the message. Here's what it says we believe about the church of the living God. We believe that the true church is composed of all such persons who, through regeneration by the Spirit and saving faith, and in that order I would say, in Jesus Christ, are united in the one body of Christ of which he is the head. I'd like to say uh, this morning, maybe for my own sake, uh, that I did not pen those words. I did not write the doctrinal statement. Not one word of what this church believed 50 years ago has fundamentally changed. Uh, Pastor Sharp isn't introducing something new. Pastor Sharp is delineating and expounding upon the very doctrines upon which this church was founded 50 years ago. Now, I did do a fair amount of writing of the rest of the Constitution because there came a time in our history when we needed to organize ourselves in how we do things more carefully around the Bible as our authority. I wonder how many of you were aware, and if you were, maybe like me, you were surprised a bit, by news that broke forth from the world of religion a while back. The story, in fact, was covered in both the print and broadcast media. Beyond the specifics of the headlines, let me just say that the crux of the matter of what was being talked about much a while back in the mainstream media about religion was this. Are you ready? The conclusion that I drew for what the press releases were saying is, it is quite apparent that, and again this may surprise some of you, but the Pope is Catholic. The Associated Press ran the bold headline, Other Churches Wrong, Pope says. Here's a brief excerpt or two from uh, AP, the Associated Press. Pope Benedict XVI reasserted the primacy of the Roman Catholic Church, approving a document released that says other Christian communities are either defective or not true churches, and that Catholicism provides the only true path to salvation. That the Catholic Church alone, solo ecclesia, the church alone provides the only true path to salvation. The commentary repeated church teaching that says the Catholic Church, and I quote directly, has the fullness of the means of salvation that Christ established here on earth, only one church. Now, if there are any Protestants here today, you would have to take from that papal decree that if you want to go to heaven, you should be leaving here and converting to Roman Catholicism according not to my teaching but to the church's teaching. 
One further quote. I don't know how this could be more starkly stated than it was by the Pope, the present Pope. The other communities, quote, cannot be called churches in the proper sense. Now, I have to tell you, my friends, ironically, quite frankly, I really admire this Pope. Because I see there a man of considerable courage and uncompromising conviction who unapologetically and even ignoring the misguided spirit of political correctness in our day that that Pope remains true to what Catholics really are supposed to believe and what they have been teaching for a millennium of time. The Pope is Catholic. Now, do not misunderstand me this morning. With all due respect, as much as I admire his leadership, I could not more strongly disagree with his doctrine. But be careful here, folks. To say that Catholicism or the Baptist baptism or that the Methodist church or that the Presbyterian church or that the Episcopal church or the multitude of independent evangelical churches is somehow the only true path to the true gospel and salvation that it alone, the church, has the fullness of the means of salvation. The Catholic Church would say it rests in its sacraments, for example. Any who lay claim to a right standing with God because of the church that they belong to, or their baptism, whether it be by infancy and sprinkling or by adult immersion, whatever the case may be, all such confidences and all such things proclaimed, the Bible would say, is another gospel. And that other gospel is one that cannot redeem a sinner's soul. What stronger words could there be to judge the proclamations, for example, of Pope Benedict than another eternal proclamation made by the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago when he addressed first century believers, those that were living in Galatia at that time. Let me read a few verses of that to you. You need not turn, it's Galatians 1, a few verses, where he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. I am amazed, Paul says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ, not some church, but by the grace of Christ, you're deserting him for a different way, a different gospel. And then Paul says, which is really not another way. 
Only there are some who are disturbing you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. But then he says this, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Apparently this is very serious business. Getting the gospel right is eternally serious business. So that if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be anathema, accursed. And then Paul says, For I would have you know that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Did not originate with a pope, did not get invested with the priest, is not owned or created by a pastor, teacher, or theologian. No, that gospel which was preached, and he says, yes, by me, is not according to man. I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. How do we know the way to heaven? Jesus has told us. And so, my beloved, you know that salvation is to be found in the person of Christ alone. Solus Christus. Every true church of Jesus Christ has a stewardship to preach the gospel. I was privileged many years ago now to attend Biblical Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania. And I loved going to chapel there three, four times a week and just having the gospel proclaimed even to us uh, budding preachers and seminary students. In my mind's eye is still emblazoned there, just behind the pulpit, a cross like ours, but then also these words. And here's what we budding preachers preparing for ministry saw every time the word went forth. The words from the Apostle Paul that say, put in trust with the gospel. And I took that very seriously. A stewardship. God has put us in trust with the only gospel that can save. How wonderful is that, but how great a responsibility Wherever and by whomever that word is proclaimed, Christ alone, there you have the true gospel. Jesus said, I, not the church, am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. For there is but one mediator between God and man. It is not the church. It is the man, Christ Jesus. I'll take an amen and keep preaching. My friends, I find nowhere in the Bible that God has ever given us permission to widen the narrow road that leads to life or to somehow make less wide the great highway that leads to destruction. Jesus said narrow is the way. And at the great intersection of life and eternity, we must maintain the signpost which warns. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof 
are the ways of death. We've got to get the gospel right in every generation. And we need to remind ourselves more than just every once in 50 years what this gospel really is. What am I saying except to say truth matters after all. Not everyone is right. The Pope may be Catholic. He certainly is being honest about it. But his gospel is not the gospel of the Apostle Paul, nor of the Bible as a whole. Now here's what I believe, lest there be anyone here misunderstanding my emphasis. I believe that I will fellowship at the feet of Jesus for eternity with thousands upon thousands of Roman Catholics. I believe that because I know that if indeed there are thousands of Roman Catholics and thousands of Baptists and thousands of Methodists and thousands of Presbyterians or Episcopalians, all of us there will be there by God's grace alone, regardless even of what may have been found in some of the doctrinal statements of various church constitutions. It's good for us to review the essential teachings of Scripture. And that's what I have sought to do with emphasis. We do it every Sunday, 52 weeks out of the year, but with special emphasis at this time. And somehow, I think even that appropriate when celebrating an anniversary of 50 years of faithfulness to preaching God's Word from a pulpit in this place. Rock-solid truth, we called it for trembling times. And ironically, what we've done is borrow the five great statements of truth which set aflame the great Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. In a strange kind of way, the Pope has reminded us that Martin Luther and the other great reformers did not, in fact, end up reforming the Catholic Church. They did, and it did, however, bring about a great departure from the Church's corrupt traditions and errors in its teachings. All that was left to do at the end of what was even a bloody battle was simply in protest to leave. It's where we get the word Protestant. We are the protestors. We demonstrated in the course of church history against error, no matter how high up it comes from the religious institutions. Through the centuries then, a memorable way of naming each of the tenets of the faith were these five solos. I've already mentioned sola scriptura. I'm confident that you have the uh, message there. I'll not review again. We went on to solus Christus, where we saw that salvation is in no other name under heaven except that which has been given, and that is, of course, through the finished work of Christ. We looked and saw that salvation is all gift, and gift 
alone, sola gratia, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. We saw in that same wonderful text, the same is true of sola fide, or by faith alone. And so now, for just these few moments that remain this morning, on this special Lord's Day, in one glorious verse, Romans 11 and verse 36, the fifth sola is the crowning jewel over all the previous four. You see, we ought to ask the question, Why has God given us the Bible so that our salvation may be discovered by Scripture alone? The answer, for his own glory. Soli Deo glory, glory to God alone. We ought to ask the question, why did Christ come to give his life a ransom for sinners? To bring salvation full and complete by Christ alone. Why did he do that? The answer is the same for his own glory. We ought to ask the question, why is God's grace and only God's grace, his grace alone, the only means of our salvation? The answer, for his own glory. We ought to ask the question, why are sinners asked, if not pleaded with, to believe, to exercise faith alone and nothing more. The answer, for God's glory alone. And so that Latin solely Deo Gloria, as the Apostle Paul has concluded at the end of 11 whole chapters that deal with God's sovereign work of salvation, he concludes For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Everything, everything that God has ever done in eternity past, Till the beginning of what we call time in the creation of the universe and one particular planet called Earth, the creation of man and woman and placing them into a garden and everything that God has done since then and to this present moment and everything that God will continue to do in the days to come And then throughout all of eternity, all of it he does for only one fundamental reason. For his own glory. And if you're a child of God, that's why you may need to be reminded, in a self-absorbed culture in which we live, The Jew, redeemed, are no longer your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. 
That is to say, with all that you are, what is the greatest commandment? It is to love the Lord your God with all of your being, all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. And what else would glorify him, having loved him to that extent, only as we are enabled to do it so inconsistently, he's also glorified when we turn that love to neighbors that are also existing for the purpose of his glory. How these great doctrines, for example, motivate us toward evangelism, personal evangelism and missions. Too often we've not, I think, considered the motivation behind our reaching out to a lost world. I recently came under some criticism because of emphasizing God's sovereign ways that somehow maybe I didn't believe in evangelism or missions. I'll tell you how much I actually do believe in it, not only because of my personal history coming out of a missionary family and seeing my own loved ones spill their blood, uh, literally sweat and tears on a foreign mission field. And that's not the reason uh, that would motivate me to be missionary-minded or have a heart for missionaries. What's the ultimate motive if I get the courage from God to speak to my unsaved neighbor or a member of my family that is not yet within the household of faith? What should motivate more than anything else, even beyond my love for the sinner? I would like to put it to you somewhere, something like this maybe. Every person you see walking down the street, maybe walking their dog, day after day, going in and out of their homes, living their lives, perhaps blessed with good health, maybe even material blessing. How many will be in that situation this Thanksgiving morning and perhaps not even pause to say thank you to their creator, but you see them without Christ, without having embraced this gospel of grace, I'll tell you why you should be motivated to share these great gospel truths. Because every man and woman and boy and girl like that, walking along the face of God's earth, is a creature that is robbing God of his glory. Right after the apostle in this text 11 chapters worth of unfolding this glorious gospel. And before he moves on to chapter 12 and verse 1, where there is a line of demarcation, he says, understand that from him to him, all of these things are for his glory. That means that my very life and its purpose is to glorify God in all things. And everyone still outside of Christ is robbing your God of his glory. Because God is glorified. Why? We read in the Bible, the angels do a dance. There's rejoicing in heaven when even one has turned and placed their faith in Christ. Why? Because it glorifies God. 
In closing, let me use other of Paul's writings, this time in Ephesians chapter 1, to make good Sunday afternoon reading, where we read, In love, God did this. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Why? And the text says, To the praise of the glory of his grace. Then he says later, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Why? And again it says, to the praise of his glory. To the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ. Could it be more clear than this? That we would be to the praise of of his glory. If you're blessed to be married, you have a husband or a wife with whom you live, how you live with that blessing either glorifies God or robs him of his glory. How you relate to your neighbor, how you treat a fellow believer, how you do your work, whether you're earthly employer be just or unjust, whether it's just not fair or whatever the case may be, the scriptures would say, ah, look beyond the human circumstance and see that every redeemed person really is laboring for God and so will endure injustice even. And why? Because it glorifies God. Because all these things come By the grace of God for his own glory, I beseech you, brothers and sisters, by those mercies that you present yourselves as living sacrifices. This week, I'd like to think of it as the thank offerings that Israel of old would give to the Lord. We're to live in everything we do and say, even the scripture says, even if we drink. Oh, what a gift. It's to the glory of God. Stand together with me, please. Father, we need no other reason to tell of Christ than to know that every sinner who is converted brings glory to your name. Father, we need no better reason to keep on keeping on in faithfulness to you. We need no other reason than to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Savior than that it brings you glory. Help us then to live our lives as put in trust with the gospel and showing forth beams of your glory here and there in the way we live and the way we respond and the love that we show so that to you alone may be the glory. Amen and amen.